0: Hey, guys, don't forget to check out the Street Cop Training Conference 2023, April 23rd through the 28th, Nashville, Tennessee. The Gaylord at Opry, what a center, what a place. We have amazing speakers, amazing training, five of the most impactful days of your career. Check it out at streetcop.com. You do not want to miss out. There is a room code available for a discounted room. Sign up now at streetcop.com. Street cop. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Pivino, and I'm with me a very special guest, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, Green Beret, TED Talk, author, the whole nine. We're blessed to have him here. Thanks for being here, Scott. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, sure. Certainly a gift to the world this morning because we will reach uh, a lot of ears and- I think there's a lot of people who, if they're not in leadership positions, are coming up in leadership positions. And anytime we get good leadership, which considerably might actually fix the entire world if oh. you had good leadership, you know, you really start to think about it. Yeah, um,
1: so true. It's an so important
0: true. topic, and it's not the only topic that we discuss at our training company, but uh certainly one that we harp on quite a bit. And some of the principles that I talk about, because I'm not the leadership instructor here, we have a guy who does that, but I just tell people. If you could just have compassion and respect for the people that you work with, work for, or work below you, it's amazing how far that would go. And in the police world, it's a very big lack thereof. And there is no simple fix to it other than at least pointing at it and saying, this is a big problem. And some of you are a real big part of it.
1: Yeah, I, I was just up in West Virginia at Harper's Ferry with the CBP up there talking exact same thing and um it's it you're right it is it is a super complex some of it's complex some of it's not complex (laughs) some of it's really really cut and dry and you're you know how you conduct yourself and navigate the world can have a lot to do with it
0: being kind is not that hard to do right really
1: not and, and frankly you know we in special forces that it doesn't prevent you from gunning up and doing what you have to do when it's time to take care of business. It really doesn't. Uh, How do you want me to address you? Lieutenant Colonel, Scott? Scott would be great. Yeah. Scott would be great.
0: Scott, can you give us the 92nd version of every time you have to do a podcast, the bio of who you are and what you do? Um, I'm sure there are people in this audience who are familiar with who you are, but it's an impressive rap sheet and I think it'd be awesome if you could share it with us.
1: Yeah, thanks. I, I am a former Green Beret. I spent 23 years in the US Army. And when I was 14 years old, growing up in a little logging town, I decided to become a Green Beret. I, I met a Green Beret who came into our soda shop on leave. And from the moment I saw this guy, his name was Mark. He sat down with me and he explained to me that Green Berets uh, are different than SEALs and Rangers and that they parachute into trust depleted areas. They build relationships and then they help people stand up on their own from the inside out. And man, I, I was hooked. Then it's like, that was it. And so from 14, that's all I wanted to do. And it's what I did for about 18 of my 23 years in the army, uh, de- deployments in Colombia, the Andean Ridge during the drug war of the nineties, uh, Iraq, Afghan, multiple tours in Afghanistan. And then when I retired, um, I, I, I noticed that a lot of the trust depleted, distracted, disengaged environments that I had known in SF, seem to be here in the united states but yet the and and worse than what i remembered and but yet the leadership skill sets that were present to deal with those just seemed really sub part of me it was a lot of kind of hands on your hips because i said so damn it kind of leadership versus purpose-based human connection old school interpersonal skills like active listening nonverbal presence narrative. And so I just asked, what if I could bring those the same way we brought Afghans onto the rooftop to make a stand when trust was when risk was low? You know, uh, what if I could do that? What if I could build a body of leadership work around that for civilian leaders? And so I started calling it rooftop leadership. And that's what I've been doing for like the last decade.
0: When did you learn leadership? And when I say that, I mean, learn the importance of it, recognize it and start implementing Leadership.
1: I think it was for me when I was a kid. My dad is my well, my mom and my dad, but my dad really modeled leadership for me. He was a, a a forester in in U.S. Forest Service, a firefight, wildland firefighter. And what I noticed about him was that people followed him because they wanted to. They didn't. They didn't feel coerced. Even people who worked for him, you could just tell there was a certain joy, in you know, not letting the old man down. And I, that always stuck with me. And I was a small run of a kid growing up. I didn't, I didn't have like many kids, any power. So I learned and we moved a lot. So I learned how to, how to connect with people and, and build rapport. And, and then when I got in special forces, that's when I really saw that there is actually for all the instincts we bring to leadership, there's actually a skill in how you lead people in hard times. And what I found was that if you're relatable to people's pain and you're relevant to their goals, because we are goal-seeking creatures, that people tend to follow you. People tend to invest in you, buy from you, move when you say to move because you're relevant to their goals and you're relatable to their pain. And that's what we're all kind of looking for in this world. And so I, I would say I really learned it I don't know that you ever truly learn it, but I started to appreciate the skill of purpose-based connection to lead people when I was a young Green Beret captain.
0: Why do you think people followed your father? Is there a story you can remember that stands out of his ability to lead and why people followed him?
1: My dad always talked about leaving tracks and he's still with us, but when he was, working he talked about to my brother and me the importance of leaving tracks in the world in other words your legacy those indelible impressions that you leave in the earth after you're gone and that really drove him as a leader he was very very adamant about his legacy and what he was building that would be there beyond his time and it's not that he talked a lot about that to his people but what what's important here is that he knew what that was he led from that place he led from a place of of legacy and doing things bigger than himself and and recognizing and accepting that a lot of what he did as a leader he would never see the benefits of he would never see necessarily the outcomes or or the payload but people beyond his time would and that's how he that's how he led that's how he still leads and that really I think people, they notice that, they sense that. There's a level of psychological safety. When you're that inwardly sound, people are drawn to it. They don't even know why. They just know that it feels safe, that when when you have that kind of sense of yourself as a leader, it creates such a level of safety that other people start to get a sense of themselves, and they want to be around that. And I think that's why. I mean, he was a, he, he did lots of great things, but he was inwardly sound. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was building, and he knew he would probably never see most of it. And that's how he navigated the world. And people are drawn to that, I think.
0: How do we know who we are?
1: Wow, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think that's a, that's an ongoing. That's an first of all, I, I don't know that we ever fully arrive at that. I know I haven't. I I find myself continuously evolving as a man. As a father, as a husband, as a leader, uh, to, to, case in point, at, to you know, to, to to kick off a great midlife crisis, I wrote a I wrote a play. I learned to act at fifty one. I performed the play with other veterans around the country. If you told me when I was a thirty five year old Green Beret fighting in Afghanistan that I was going to do that, I would have laughed you out of the room. But I believe that. If we're open to it, if we're open to the tracks that we're here to leave in this world and and we really look for the legacy that we that we leave behind that people talk about 15 years after we're gone. Then I believe that we are gifted a a deeper sense of ourselves as we move through life, We, 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 we are presented with different shades of who we are, but what I think keeps us grounded are those tracks. That legacy. I think that there's a certain permanence to that. I think the more clear we can get on that, that seems to hold true. For example, like I some of the tracks I want said about me that I want to leave are that I really, really fought hard for veterans and first responders. That's very important to me. Now I may do that as a storyteller, I may do that as a news analyst, I may do that as an author, I may do that as an actor, my hats may change. But those tracks of taking care of veterans and first responders that those run deep for me, that's, that's, that's who I am in my inner core. The different manifestations of it will ebb and flow over time. You know, like my dad, you know, my dad is no longer a firefighter, he is leading an effort to restore uh, a functionally uh, extinct tree called the American chestnut. And, but he's a prominent leader. He did a Ted talk at 73 on it. He, you know, he's, he's reinventing himself all the time and he's had a stroke and two bouts with cancer and he walks with a cane, but man, he's still leaving those tracks and and those tracks are still consistent. So I, I, it was a long way around to your question. And I don't know if I came close to it, but I do think, I don't know that we ever truly know who we are, but I think we're presented with different versions of who we are as we move toward a legacy or, or or the things that we want to leave behind.
0: You talked about a little bit, you mentioned maybe people's gifts, um, what they're born with. I tend to believe that a lot of people are born with something more than themselves that they could give as a gift to the world. But I imagine most of the best songs and the best poets and the best books were never even written because of maybe anxiety or the judgment of others. What's your thoughts mm-hmm. on that?
1: I love that. I was just reading. I, it's a great book. I would recommend it to anyone uh, on here right now. It's called the war of art by, oh, Stephen, by Stephen yeah. yeah, I've read it. Great. And so you, you know, this thing called resistance, right? With a capital R. Are you also a
0: Seth Godin fan, Scott.
1: I am. Yeah. yeah
0: very much. So it's like my guru.
1: Yeah. I think he's great. And, uh, I would love to see Steve and Seth riff. Uh, that would be really cool. Um, but uh, if, if, if I think we're all born with innate gifts, I really do. I think it gets, and here's why I think that because humans are, cre- we're creatures of struggle. The, we are, we are wired. There are certain things that we're predisposed to as humans, no matter how modern we think we are. One of them is struggle. We, we, no matter how much money we have, how much wealth we have, every single one of us struggles to navigate the world we go through struggle and it's in those struggles that we have lived experiences that that wisdom permeates that we find ways to overcome things that that matter and it's through storytelling and human connection over 70,000 years that we we have shared our lived experiences through narrative on overcoming struggle dealing with struggle And I believe every single one of us, even those of us who have been through immense trauma, have the opportunity to repurpose our struggle in the service of others. I talk about this in my TED Talk, the generosity of scars. That, in essence, is what that is. When you repurpose your struggle or your scars in the service of others, it is a level of generosity, a level of leadership that is on a different plane, really. It, 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 and and if you want to see what that looks like, look at people who have just been through immense struggle, and then they share those lessons or those experiences with the outside world. Uh, Malala, I believe is how you say her name, the young Pakistani girl who was left for dead by the Taliban. She had every reason in the world to pull back and just be a recluse, but instead she went the opposite direction. She repurposed her scars, her struggle in the service of others, towards education for uh, young girls who are underrepresented. So, but the problem, the challenge that we run into, and I see this a lot in law enforcement, I see it a lot with first responders, and I see it a lot with veterans. I believe that those folks have some of the greatest gifts to give because of the immense struggle they have faced. But we are actually taught to push that down. We are taught to push that into a dark place so that we can keep going. And if we even try to bring those lessons to the light and talk about them or share them in a healthy way, resistance shows up. And resistance is that self-sabotage, that negative energy that Stephen Pressfield has coined. It's the imposter syndrome. Who are you to even talk about this? And we pull back. So it, it, it is it is a major thing for leaders to deal with resistance. And the higher plane you go, the higher contribution you try to do, the more resistance is going to try to put itself between you and where you want to go with it.
0: When somebody knows what their purpose is or thinks they've found a purpose in life, what do you think they
1: should do first? I believe in movement when it comes to purpose. There are a lot of people who believe that purpose comes to us if we're still, if we don't if we just wait for it, we'll we'll get clarity of purpose. And I, I don't think that's true. I think first of all, I think it's important to understand that as humans, and, and all these things that I kind of throw out on human nature, this is part of what I do as a Green Beret and what I the body of work that I've built within around, I built then is around understanding our own human nature. I don't think we do that enough as leaders. And there's actually a lot about us and how we navigate the world that have nothing to do with language or culture. It's it's how we're wired. And one of the things that is an innate truth about humans is we are meaning-seeking creatures. We seek meaning in everything we do, and we assign meaning to everything we do. And we're the only mammals that do that. So if you think about it, we navigate the world around this thing called meaning or purpose. So it is absolutely critical to how we take action in the world. And one of the things that uh, psychologist Ivan Tyrrell says in his book, The Human Givens, is that movement and meaning are inextricably linked. You can't separate them. And I believe that when we start to get glimpses of purpose or meaning in our life, we need to move. We need to move. And, and we need it needs to be functional movement, it, whether that is, Literally have you ever noticed, I don't know about you, but like when ideas come to you that you look back on, they were big ideas and big things that they come to me when I'm working out. They come to me when I'm when I'm doing something functional. And that is there's I think there's something to that. When you sit down and do your work or you lean into your regimen, that's when real ideas and opportunities come. So I think the first thing to do is when you get a glimpse of a purpose that is new or exciting is move, move toward it. Don't overthink it. Don't, you know, like with the play, it came to me in a really weird way, but I just started moving toward it. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. A lot of people still think I'm crazy, but keep moving because that's where I think the manifestation of that gift lies is in movement.
0: I often believe myself that living a fulfilled life, is not a stagnant life. So I, at 40 40- years old, which I am, I look at life and the reason I've had the life that I've had, which I think is a great life thus far, um, is because of my ability to just keep it moving, keep doing things, keep going to places, uh, not really saying no to to situations like that. Um, So I I could agree with that. And there's something you said earlier, and it plays in my head consistently, and I'll share you a, a brief story. Sometimes I just find myself looking for answers on a lot of different topics. And years and years ago, I found myself looking for answers in life after death. And a gentleman had been interviewed and he was on YouTube and he said he went to heaven, he met the Lord, and the Lord sent him back. But the Lord asked him what he had done for his fellow man. And he said he had not done enough to go back with a new purpose. And the gentleman now travels around and visits with people who are terminally ill and tells them about his experience. And that is his gift back to the fellow man and sharing his story. So I think it's interesting that uh, you talked about leaving tracks What your father said, I live my life thinking about that every single day. What am I doing for everybody else? I'm things I'm doing for myself as well. But if I am given this gift to try to make change and a difference and we're actually having impact, Am I fulfilling that every single day? What am I doing that is selfless in that? And there's a lot of things that come back to me that are negative and positive. But I have two questions. So I want to go back to your father. You know, what was it like being parented by your father? And where did he learn to be so in touch with himself? And then how does that transform into your ability to father and parent?
1: My dad was raised in the mountains of north carolina and under some really really rough circumstances very very poor my mom too both grew up very very poor in appalachia but they had parents who were survivors of the depression and who really poured everything into giving their kids uh, a chance you know my dad i think was the first and my mom to go to college from that family And they'd been in appalachia for decades and decades. I think my dad would tell you his leadership came from his father who, who really was just modeled what it meant to be a, a strong man and to, and to, and to pour everything into your family. He was not the thing about my dad. That's it, really, to me, is just astounding. He's never raised his voice at me or my brother in all the years that he raised us. He always kept uh, just in, you know, and even, he got angry but he never yelled at us. And I, and I always, and now (laughs) being the father of three boys, I did not achieve that. Uh, But I, he, he really modeled for me what it, what it meant to. uh, Be a man and, and, and perform as a leader when you're, you know, as if your children are watching you all the time. In fact, when, when this thing happened with Afghanistan, when Afghanistan collapsed and the government just, pulled back and left our partners in a lurch someone asked me why did you do this whole pineapple thing like why did you even try to do that something as as uh unreasonable as that and i said uh without really thinking about it my kids are watching me right now my kids our kids are watching us right now they're watching whether we honor this promise and and we're there for our friends the way we taught them to be there for their friends Mm -hmm. And that was all I could think of. And 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 it was my dad that, that really just drove those lessons into me. And and every time I turned around, he was living them. He wasn't, you know, he it wasn't it wasn't like do what I say, not what I do. He lived them. And and it was always when no one was looking, it was in the small moments. But I had the opportunity to put those into play in combat, far away from the flagpole, far away from the watchful eye of the bureaucrats and the politicians, and and I found it to be absolutely true that that's what in the darkest of times, um, those those simple lessons that he taught me and that my mom taught me, um, are very very relevant. And the harder things get, and the more complex things get, at least for me, the more those simple truths matter, and the more we need to feel our feet on the ground and get back to our nature and 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 be connected to our nature and lead from that place. It's not that advanced. Uh, the complexity around us is man is man made, and often a self inflicted butt whooping. You know,
0: you've obviously lived, you know, a significant amount of years on this earth. I'm not saying that based on your appearance, but just based on your history of having as much time as you had on the uh, in the green berets, and you know, and, and a good one at that. I myself have found that there are times in my past that I was not pleased with my performance. What do you do to make peace with the times that you were not pleased with your performance? And what do you say about that going forward?
1: I'm trying to learn how to give myself grace. I I like to think of myself as a high performer, and I'm always pushing myself and doing what scares me. And then I'm hard on myself when I don't rise to that occasion, or I don't meet whatever standard I've set for myself. And So a couple of things I would say is most of what I've learned in my life, I've learned through immense failure. Um, I'm a alcoholic, I've been in recovery for a couple of days, Um, put some put some good sobriety together. And, you know, that was probably where I learned how to forgive myself and give myself grace in a way that I had never done. I've had Severe depression coming out of the military almost took my own life. And once again, I, I, I found myself embarrassed about that, ashamed about that, wanting to pull back from that. And at some point along the way, I guess I learned how to give myself some grace and to recognize and honestly, my wife helps me with this, too. When I don't, she's usually right there to do that for me. Um, but it's a, it's a journey, man. It's, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily get any easier. I I feel like you, you talk about wanting to make an impact in the world. I lost a lot of friends in combat, a lot of buddies who, man, they were too young. (laughs) They were too young to leave when they left. And I think about them all the time. And I, you know, I kind of made a promise to myself that if I made it out of there, I would never ever squander opportunities that came to me. And it would, I was living not just for me, but I was living for them too. And maybe that's why I'm so unreasonable about the things that I pursue. But at the same time, I've got to give myself some grace and I've got to recognize that I can't always, I can't always fulfill on those things. I'm going to fall. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lifelong process for me to learn how to lead myself, practice self-care, practice self-leadership, um, and, and recover and, and, you know, and allow myself to to make mistakes fall learn from them without beating myself up so i don't know that i've had that, i've got that one figured out i don't know that i ever will but i do I, I am more aware of it than i've been in the past and and i think that's important
0: i think it's clear that you're constantly moving forward um and scott just so you know nobody gets a pass from life's difficulties i just you know i'm sure you know that already but yeah you're not alone in, in the fact that there are people experiencing pain. Um, and I think it comes at different levels for different people at different times in their lives. But I think sometimes when we go through pain, we learn a lot of compassion. So you can look at somebody and not have judgment about their behavior or something they did or didn't do. And maybe try to understand where is the pain? where Where is the hurt? Where are they getting their butt kicked, hypothetically? Yeah. And maybe finding something out about that. You know, we had an incident recently where somebody who was not part of our company came to our company event and that got very very intoxicated and first time person ever spent time with us um and you know I, i'd imagine the next day that person felt pretty bad about what they had done because it wasn't a fun thing it was mm-hmm. so i said to uh, one of the people who work here i said do me a favor just send him a text and tell him that things happen there's no judgment we're not mad and um and i said to her my 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 second in command here i said could you imagine the, what he must be dealing with to have done that you know I mean, it's not a normal way to behave with alcohol we sit here and we we denounce or look at that behavior and say oh what a fool made himself look so ridiculous and there's a, you know, there's a long story to it i said but you're not asking the question of why did he do that? Why did it go that route? And it went so fast. It wasn't, he wasn't even having a good time. He was literally straight for the heavy booze real hard, real fast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. it, It is. And you know, it was, it was 20 years ago, man, that I, that I got sober and it still feels like it was more than 20. It's, but it still feels like yesterday. and, I those lessons and that feeling you're talking about like I still remember all that stuff and I'm grateful for it I really am because you hit on something really important is that we are all every single one of us goes through some kind of struggle multiple times mm-hmm. and we we all have to to kind of walk that path and as leaders regardless of title or whatever if if we can make ourselves relatable to the pain of other people it is one of the fastest ways to be effective as a leader. And, I, and I'll give you an example is, for example, in, in Afghanistan, when we would go, we finally figured out after about 10 years of fighting there, when we went into these villages where the elders were tickling the triggers of their AK-47s with their index finger wanting to you know decide whether they were going to dispatch us or not. the, the number one goal was to see the pictures in the head of those elders. What, what, you know, meet them where they are, not where you want them to be. What's, what's their pain. What's their goal. What's their pain. What's their goal. And nothing else matters until you see that it doesn't matter. If your teenager comes up to you and you know, you don't know, you're not crystal clear on the pain and goals in her mind at that moment, you're not relevant. You're not relevant because, because they'll, They'll smell that a mile away. If you go into a community and you're trying to engage and you're not clear on the pain and the goals, you're really not in a position to lead. And that I learned that really from going through that horrific journey of sobriety that I went through over two decades. And, but it's, it's very, very clear to me now that being relatable to someone's pain does not make you weak, it does not put you at disadvantage, it does not require you to compromise your lethality or your coercion. In fact, it is a front end tool that will allow you to probably meet your goals far quicker, far more effectively than anything else. And that aspect of struggle and pain is, it's the secret sauce, really, to leadership.
0: Do you believe, and this is kind of a two part question, that leadership can be learned, and also compassion can be learned.
1: Yes. And I think there's a whole body of work that backs that up. I I really do. There's a wonderful book by Tim Spiker called The Only Leaders Worth Following. And what Spiker asserts is that it's who, not what, and which is really epiphanal in many ways, even though it seems simple. But most leadership Folks and out, you know, in companies talk about the what of leadership, but it's that who, you know, and what Spiker says through a whole host of research and, and 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 data points is that what he defines as who, not what, is inwardly sound, out and others focused, seem to be the consistent things that people follow: inwardly sound, others focused, and there's different data points within that. But, but my point is that we can learn to be inwardly sound. I believe that I believe that we can learn to be others focused. And there's recent studies right now that show that what we thought was usually developed by the time we're, you know, a teenager. Now there's, there's evidence that we can develop even our moral compass up until the time we die. And I believe that I believe that we can learn leadership. I believe that we can learn compassion. And for those of us who are in the lethal fields where it's, it's, it's caustic and corrosive, we have to. I think we have to be able to learn all the way up until we we leave this earth. Otherwise, we are relegated to the cauldrons that we had to operate in. And I don't, I just don't buy into that. I, I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all. I think we can constantly evolve and change if we have the will to do so.
0: You can decide whether or not you want to discuss this portion, but a few questions regarding alcoholism. And the reason I want to ask those questions, because I think that we serve a community where alcoholism is prevalent, which is so wild at times, if you really think about it, how contradictory it is to the, the type of people that we serve, you wouldn't think that alcoholism would be prevalent in our protectors of society. But unfortunately, it is. Just a few questions about it, if you don't mind. If you don't want to answer them, that's fine. Oh no, that's fine. You said that you were dep- depressed. Did you have depression prior to your time in the service? Now that you're looking back as a kid, do you remember yourself feeling depressed?
1: So no, there wasn't like a pre-service depression or a pre-service trauma, which is very common, by the way. And and uh, I'm putting my nonprofit hat on. My wife and I founded a nonprofit called The Hero's Journey after my battle with transition the depression and all the crap that went with it, we started a nonprofit and we help first responders and warriors use narrative to reconnect on the other side of transition and Mm -hmm. and use story to heal, validate, connect. And so in that, a lot of these questions have come up. I've seen a lot of this. And so I did not have the pre-service depression or even a propensity for drinking long line of alcoholism in my family. And I started drinking in college, but I was off to the races very quickly. I believe my predisposition for alcoholism was there. And it, but it became part of, I was a high functioning alcoholic, Dennis. I mean, I was on a team. I was operating in the Andean Ridge, like down in Columbia. And my team, we played hard and we we worked hard. And looking back on it, there were quite a few of us who had a problem with alcohol at that time. No one would admit to that. In fact, it was a huge part of the culture, still is. But uh, no, there was nothing pre-service like that. That um, that I would say contributed.
0: How do you define what kind of alcoholism you had, and how were you abusing alcohol? Looking back, and the reason I ask that is because there's one overall blanketing perspective that everyone that is somebody who is. Constantly drunk, wakes up in the morning is drinking in the morning, in the afternoon, at night is drunk. That's how they function. They're a functioning alcoholic, and there are people then who abuse alcohol in certain settings. Is there a difference? What kind of alcohol did you look back and say that you were? I'm just trying to delve into this a little bit.
1: I, I'm pretty old school in this. That from, and I can only speak for me, right? So I, uh but if that gives someone some some shared perspective, that's awesome. But for me. I became powerless over alcohol, full oh. stop. Okay, that that and there was a point when that happened, and it was well before I got in the army. Uh, but but just because I was powerless it didn't mean I wasn't functioning. I was still functioning, and I was functioning at a pretty high level, and I continued to function for years and years and years on into my time in the service, up until I was a senior captain, and and then it started to affect my family. It started to affect my, my judgment, my decisions. It was still, I was still moving up in the army. I was still making rank and all that other stuff, but, but it was starting to have an effect on my home life and in my own health that I started to notice it. And, and I had some people come into my life that helped me realize that I had become powerless over this substance. And that was all I needed it took me some time to, to accept it, but that definition was all I needed. And once I, once I recognized that I was powerless over alcohol and I gave, you know, and I I admitted that it opened up a whole different world for me, for me that allowed me to then recover and, and still perform at the even higher level. And, and, you know, 20 some years later, that's kind of where I am, but I don't, necessarily think there's different types of alcoholism. I think it is what it is, there's different levels of uh, how it's showing up for you. You know, but the reality is, I believe is that alcohol, it's an it's an allergy to a substance and it and you are powerless over it. And it has it has power over you. And that's my definition of it. That's my working definition of it. It worked for me. Um, I don't know if it works for others, but that's a pretty widely held belief in most recovery circles as well.
0: What was your ritual like with alcohol?
1: Oh. Um, you know, it was my wife and I, we were we were really young at the time and our kids were young and it would be something like I would stop on the way home from the team room, pick up a half case of beer, go home, we'd turn on country music, sit outside, drink a couple of beers, grill some burgers, drink a couple more beers. My wife would stop drinking. You know, I would do some work around the house, drink a couple more beers. And it was that. And then on the weekends and things, we would have team parties. All my boys would come over from my ODA and my team and we would, we would throw down and go to the lake and, but it was fun, you know, and, but then there were episodic periods in there where it wasn't fun, where it, where I, my drinking was different than other people's. Um, and. Again, in that culture, you got away with it. You, it, it, it. At least I did for the period of time that I did it. But I knew, I knew something was different. I was I was handling it different than other people. And I didn't want to admit that to myself. I didn't want to talk about that. But I knew, I knew there was something different about it. And it, it became, ultimately, it got to the point where it had more power over me than I did over it. And it started to affect my relationships, particularly with my wife. And, and something had to give at that point. So I had, you know, it was a bottom for me. Could I've gone to another bottom? Sure. (laughs) You know, plenty of people lose their marriage, plenty, but I chose that was my bottom and I chose to get sober at that point. So um, that's what it looked like for me kind of day in the life.
0: Why do you think you turned to alcohol? I had a guy on one time who said that he had at a young age, the first time he'd ever tasted alcohol or, or felt the effects of alcohol it was like the best feeling he ever felt in his life. It was euphoric and that's something I'd never heard before. Because mm-hmm. remember, the first time I tasted alcohol, I went, oh God, I got I to drink this shit. Holy crap, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so, was it a similar feeling in that sense that it was euphoric and you liked the feeling of it?
1: It was for me. Yeah, I've talked to my wife about that before. That the first time I never even drank a drop of alcohol until I was a, like a sophomore in college. And I was terrified of it because it was so pervasive in my family. And so I had stayed away from it completely. But then when I took a drop, uh, my first drink, it was, it was that it was exactly as you described it. It was euphoric. It felt, I knew right then something was different and I didn't talk about it, but it was like, oh my God. And it was both exhilarating and scary at the same time because I knew I had crossed over probably right then (laughs) had crossed over a line. I think, I think also we drink we met, we self-medicate Uh the, one of my counselors who in, in my nonprofit who does a lot of work with post-traumatic stress. He's, he says, we want to feel better, man. People just, they want to feel better. They don't want to feel bad. They don't want to feel the shit that you feel when you have to do the kind of work that so many of your folks do that so many of my brothers did. You don't want to sit in that, you know? So you, you want to feel better. And it's really that simple. And I, I, it is ironic in the sense that what it actually does is, yeah, it does that for a while, but then it actually takes you lower and does more harm, but that's not, that's not what's happening. I think at, at, at the surface, what, I think what most humans is they just want to feel better. And that, that just happens to be the way they do it. Um, And I, it, that really helped me as I started working with other veterans and first responders on transition and coming out of the dark places is that man we all just want to feel better because we've been through a lot we've seen a lot we've experienced a lot and no one wants to sit in that and we all try we're all navigating the world as best we can and trying to and and our cultures and i'm not blaming it on this we're all we all have agency in our life but you know that our culture's Create this environment where we can, you know, you can, you can go down that road, and you can go a long way down that road, and it's even condoned in some some ways. So, it's um, it's a real double edged sword, man. It's 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 it's. I'm grateful for where I am in my life. I'm grateful for today and and being sober today, and I wouldn't change that journey. But it is uh, it's tough. It's it's really tough, and I think the stuff that our people are up against um makes it even tougher
0: i believe that vulnerability is an important quality of a good leader maybe even a great leader and you being vulnerable right now being a guest on a podcast being a lieutenant colonel from the military green beret uh, ted talks recognizes a thought leader on leadership um so I want to acknowledge and commend you for sharing this because I think it helps people take somebody if you really think deep down, you know, your, your vulnerability is helping others. What would you say to somebody whom I believe they are abusing alcohol as a first step to get away from abusing alcohol?
1: That's always tough. You know, it's always a tough engagement and um, it, it might be a little, I don't know if it's easier for me, but. I have found that for me, because um, I went down that road and and I've, I've experienced that, that, that I kind of come at it a bit differently. What I typically do, if, if I see someone in, in, and I have in my circle who's abusing alcohol, drugs, uh, self-medicating in other ways, or is on, you know, just on the brink of something, I try to, I try to come at them in a moment when it, I can tell that they're hurting and to just let them know that I'm there and to let them know that if they ever need to talk, I'm, I'm here, particularly with alcohol or drugs. I will usually say something. it's usually I will wait for a moment when it's bad and, or their spouse will call me and it's bad. And there's just, cause I remember that moment <laughs> there's just a certain level of low. When you're at that moment, you're ready to listen. You know, that's the thing about human engagement is I believe we have to ask ourselves when we're engaging another human. The first question we should ask ourselves is, is this person ready to listen to me right now or am I just spewing? Because if they're not ready to listen, who gives a damn, right? If they're not ready to listen to what you have to say, you're you're just wasting, you're actually agitating them. So I try to wait for the moment when I think they're ready to listen. And then I just want to let them know that I've been down that road and there is a path out. And if you'd like to talk about it, I am right here. And I have, I have had just recently uh mirror, babe, we jumped in uh, a car with uh, a buddy of mine and we went to a meeting right then. We just drove to a meeting and I, we had to give up the afternoon and, but whatever. Um, so that's how I do it. I, I think that, On a broader level, though, I do think there is some utility in this with anybody is in those moments, you know, how do I get this person ready to listen and how do I just let them know that I'm here? And that can mean more than anything in those dark moments is just knowing that somebody's there and that they're seen and that they that they're available. Uh, Daniel Hardy calls it being an empathetic witness, is bearing witness to someone else's pain in the moment they're in it and no agenda, no judgment, just being present for that person. And my experience in the last three years or so that I've been using that as my intention whenever I can is that's a pretty good way to connect in that moment and you don't even know what the next move is but that's okay just making the connection in that moment you'll know you'll know what the next move is um but being that empathetic witness is not a bad intention to set for yourself when someone's at that low point or not even if they're you know just you're not sure where they are it's not a bad way to come at the connection the engagement
0: while you're talking you use one of these words, but I heard certain words, even though you may not have said them. And the three words that came to my mind are seen, validated and heard very, very strong concepts from a good leadership perspective. Uh, and I want to follow up with what these other three words mean to you when it comes to a leadership meaning, or even being a good human being to somebody else. Uh, compassion, empathy and willing willingness to listen. Think about those compassion, empathy, and willingness to listen. What does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, so, and they're all they're all powerful words. And they are they're right in line, once again, with our nature and how we're wired to navigate the world. You know, humans are social creatures. We don't have fur, fangs, or claws. And the way that we've 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 gotten to a point in our in, in our existence as humans that we thrive above other mammals in the food chain is how we connect with other humans, how we form clans, tribes, groups to overcome obstacles. So those words that you just said are actually superpowers for our innate drive to connect with other humans. So compassion, when I think about compassion, I think about being relatable to other people's pain. Mm -hmm. Full stop if if I, can, if, I, if I know the pain points that they're going through and I can demonstrate relatability to their pain. See, to me, that's even better than vulnerability because you have to be vulnerable to do that. But what we're really looking for as humans when it comes to compassion is, is I'm looking for someone who relates to me because if this person relates to my pain and I relate to theirs, then that means we can fight together, we can farm together, We can go through struggle together. It is, you know, it is the first place where I choose another human being. I choose if they are relatable to my pain, and that's what compassion in my in my assessment really is. It's demonstrating relatability to one's pain, to another person's pain. And if you do that, it's a trust accelerant in any setting, and it costs you nothing. It's the first thing I teach Green Beret candidates. If, if you don't know the pain of the person sitting across from you, you are not relevant to that situation. You're a non-player. So that's compassion. Uh, empathy is the, is it, it is the manifestation of that. It is, it is the physical action of literally feeling what another person feels, right? It's not, it's not sympathy where you're feeling sorry for, but empathy is a, it is a form of connection. It is, it is literally the transference of energy between two humans where I am, I am, I am open and trying to feel what you feel. Now that sounds all woo woo and touchy feely, but check this out. The payload from empathy is reciprocity, right? If someone is empathic and they demonstrate a connection to you. And you know what I'm talking about? Like you you meet this person and you can just tell they get you, they get what you're, and you, and it's nonverbal. You just, if you feel it at a solar plexus level, you start to want to do something for that person. You want to be around that person. You want to do something for that. That's reciprocity. And that's why I believe and This is why it's so biological and pure. You know, if we can demonstrate empathy as a manifestation of our compassion, then the reward the payload the return on investment is reciprocity Mm -hmm. you know and and that social contract deepens and we can go faster and then the final one what was the final one i had willingness to listen willingness to listen so there is that is i believe in this day and age with all of the distrust in the world where two-thirds of americans say they don't trust their neighbor social media is dividing us um the media is dividing us politicians are dividing us if to me if you really want to be relevant is build those listening skills active listening skills um listening like your life depends on it because that's where other people that's where you can really accelerate trust it's where you can get the goods on what really matters in the situation you can validate the other party uh, there's so many good things that come from listening and there's a great book called the 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 book of beautiful questions by a guy named Warren Berger, and he calls himself a questionologist. But he asks these thoughtful, open-ended questions, like you've done on this podcast. You're very great at questions, and questions accelerate trust if they're thoughtful and open-ended, and they let the other party tell you a story. They are they are a wonderful listening mechanism, and developing your skill as a questionologist, I believe is new ground for leaders who want to achieve more in low trust times.
0: Well, I appreciate you giving me some credit on being a good questioner, uh, questionologist. Uh, if you listen to episode one of this podcast compared to episode 700, wherever we're at now, I uh-huh. uh, certainly progressed in my ability to be more of a listener Um Because just like you, I enjoy being questioned as well. And, you know, it's interesting, Scott, a lot of times people that end up on this podcast. I feel like we're all kind of cut from the same cloth in some way. I think we all have similar struggles, uh, similar purpose, um, answering the calls that maybe uh, a higher calling has sent to us. And. I almost feel like, and there's a lot of people who come and go that in these one hour podcast episodes we do, that I, that I develop a real connection with a guy like you. Like, I actually feel like we're friends now. You know, it's, I really yeah. do feel that. Yeah, I feel like if yeah. I saw you, I'd feel like I, I've known you for 50, 60 years. And I observed how you go, because I know that we're very, very similar in probably our biological makeup and our chemistry and our brain. Here's an interesting question probably nobody ever asked you, but I think, I think a lot of the questions I have for you are almost self-serving a little bit for me, but does your brain ever stop? Do you <laughs> ever stop being in thought?
1: No, mm-hmm. it doesn't. I, it really doesn't. I have to work at that. I have to really, really work at that. This is where I, I my workouts, my mindfulness. You know something I've started doing lately, Dennis, and I learned this at uh, acting. When I had to perform my play, I'd never acted before and I have pretty severe PTS survivor's guilt. And my acting coach said, I'm going to put you with a breath coach. And I, I thought what, and, but I ended up doing this diaphragmatic breathing and it really, really helped me slow my mind down at the right moments and kind of drop in. So No, it doesn't stop, but there are ways to really drop in if if that makes sense, like where you're in more in your body than in your head. And I found that diaphragmatic breathing on the tail end of a workout really works for me. And, um, if you, if anyone listening is interested in that, the book breathing for warriors by Dr. Belisa Varonich. V-R-A-N-O-I-C-H is a great, great tool for busy minds.
0: Gonna have to guess that meditation ties into that some way. Uh, I'm a meditator. I've been a meditator for about two and a half years. Yeah. It's 4th of July weekend recently, and I had family over. So my meditation practice kind of fell off a little bit because I Old Den was playing cornhole and hit 250 people at my house on the 4th of July. And, you know, I tend to misbehave with fireworks and all that shit. So that kind of yeah. went out the window to the wayside. I also have many, many children. Um, some things that I do when I have a lot of thoughts is I get them down on paper. I get them out of my brain onto paper. I can always revisit those thoughts later on because yeah. for me, a lot of those thoughts are important. And some days when I don't have uh, the prophetic thoughts that I typically do, um, I feel like they're There are days that wasn't so productive. However, I'm able to recognize what those days are and get more into the weeds and into the field of doing some real labor uh, outside of thoughtful labor. You're somebody, and we'll do a question or two, and then we're going to wrap. I imagine coming out and saying what you say and expressing what you believe and sharing with the world a gift, while it may help a lot of people, and certainly not downplaying that. I have to imagine at some point you must have received some criticism for the work that you do. How do you deal with that criticism?
1: Yeah, I think anytime you you play a bigger game and you put yourself out there and you try to serve a higher purpose, you're going to receive that criticism. You're going to, you, and oftentimes I don't know about you, but where I kind of look over my shoulder more is when it comes from the community I was in. So when it comes from the veteran community or even law enforcement, because I feel like there's such a kindred relationship there. I'm more acutely aware of that than say, you know, the corporate world or this media, this corporate media company, because I know, I know what that game is, right? I know that that's divisionism at its finest and they're just playing their game. But when you, and most recently where I've really experienced this probably more than at any point in my life, and I'm having to really wrestle with it is where I'm putting out this book on the collapse of Afghanistan called Operation Pineapple Express. And I I struggled with writing it because I was so angry and disillusioned when Afghanistan collapsed and we abandoned our commandos and our Afghan special forces. And we volunteers had to stand up and put this together. I was, man, I was so mad and angry about that. And I I, I knew that if I wrote about it, I was going to be, Brutally honest on what happened. And I knew that the people who I was going to have to be brutally honest about were the active duty and retired general officers and admirals who, frankly, sat this one out and who shifted the moral responsibility onto the backs of veterans and active duty junior NCOs and officers and then just turned the page like, just turned the page like it never happened. So, long way around to say this book's coming out like in a couple of weeks and it. Names, names. It calls out in the epilogue the people who literally raised me, man. These were my mentors, my father figures. And right now, to be perfectly honest, the ones that I'm talking about in the book, I don't even think of them as peers anymore. And that's really, really hard because I know that's going to come at a cost because the way it is in the military, I don't know how this is in law enforcement, but you have these iconic dudes and dudettes, and they have their tribe. And you're either of part of that tribe or you're not part of that tribe. And if you say something that calls out one of those iconic leaders, it is heresy, man. And that is what I've done in this book. And so I'm I'm having to put everything in play that I can possibly put in play to keep my resilience high and withstand what may come with this i don't know what will come with this i know a lot of people will be served by it and will be glad they have it but some will be angry and i have to just really work my own resilience and my own self-care and my own self-leadership to deal with that
0: yeah it's coming Um, and you know i asked that question because obviously i can relate to that and there are plenty of things that people you know they often see what they see on our social media platforms and, and the life that I live and people will go to an event and people want to take pictures with me and all this, this stuff. And it's wonderful. It's a great, it's a great experience, but they're not seeing as the other side of things. And you know, people say, wow well, company looks like it's doing great. You guys are exploding. Up. You're no, nationally. Yeah, I'm aware of that. But maybe I don't talk about the other things. Sometimes I can't talk about other things that are going on. And sometimes I don't want to acknowledge other things in the sense of giving them growth, energy and the ability to manifest in my life. So I try to focus on the better things. You know, Mm -hmm. I am also trying to figure out a way constantly to make sure I'm serving everybody in the law enforcement community to the best of my ability, maybe even beyond the law enforcement community. Uh, So I'm trying to make this thing about unity and I've kind of taken this position where I'm trying to build the next generation. I found that some of the existing generation maybe half want to listen, half do not. And I tend to think when you were talking, there is no progression without pain. Apply that to everything in life. Is there ever any progression without pain?
1: No, I don't think there is. I think struggle, you know, Daniel Coyle in his book, The Little Book of Talent talks about how when we face something new in life, whether it's learning a new skill or uh, an illness that comes our way, what happens is the brain has to build new neural pathways to deal with that reality with that with that new raw data the brain builds these new neural pathways and that is a clunky awkward painful process when the brain is building those new neural pathways it doesn't feel good and by definition he calls that struggle and he says that in that if that definition holds true and i believe it does then struggle isn't just something that happens to some of us. It's a biological necessity, you know, and and our ability to integrate and synthesize our actions on on the back of struggle as leaders is essential. But nowadays what we do is we dilute the struggle. We hide the struggle. It's five ways, five easy ways to be great like me. And it's unwatchable. There's no leaders out there hardly at all who stand squarely on struggle and bring it into the conversation and talk about their own struggle and how it shaped them and, and invoke how others have overcome struggle and really let it be what it is. It is at the heart of how we grow and change as humans. And it's necessary. There's a saying in in, in literature and in acting, no struggle, no story. And, and I think that's absolutely true. People choose us. They choose whether they follow us or don't follow us, believe us or don't believe us in the middle of struggle. That's mm-hmm. where they find us. That's where we find each other. And that's where we choose each other for the first time is in struggle.
0: Whether I'm right or wrong for saying this might be years to come before I have realized if it was right or wrong, but I'm going to say it uh, with the intention of being vulnerable and the people who do listen and do follow what my my mission is and they believe it's part of their mission as well when you're going for a large reward and I don't mean that in a sense of financial reward uh, or materialistic reward maybe just the what you set out to achieve believe it that's very macro so it could be financial it could be um, you know something materialistic uh, it could be something about yourself and how you want to look and there's just this constant thing. The question I think most people have to ask themselves is, are you willing to endure the pain for the reward? Because as Scott just mentioned before, it is going to be a painful journey, whether it's you want to get back in physical shape, uh, you you want to grow and develop your brain, you want to grow a company, you want to make a change and a purpose in the world, you want to have impact and you believe you can. The question is, how much are you willing to suffer
1: for it? That's a great point and i think also if you want to it's it there's a there's two aim points that i believe you can throw up when you think about your goal is and these are kind of extreme but you could say i want to be the best i want to be the best at this thing or you could say i want to be the most relevant at this thing right and this gets to that others focused part you could be the best in something you could build a company that is exponentially more profitable than where you started it's 10 figures, whatever. And that's great. But the question then becomes is on that Maslow's pyramid, if it's, if it's down towards the bottom and it it addresses material goals, and this is just my belief, if it addresses that, the other thing that you have to consider is most of your grind to get there is going to have to be transactional. You're going to have to gut and grind and, and you're going to have to do just transaction after transaction with the people around you to get where you wanna to get, to be the best, if you wanna be the most relevant. In other words, if it's a self-actualizing goal, if it's something that brings an impact to civil society, for example, and makes the world a better place, then what you, what you have at your disposal is the social capital around you, empathy, reciprocity, the willingness of others to actually help you build what you're building because it resonates with them at a self-actualizing level because we're wired that way as humans and the money will also probably come as a result of that. So I'm just kind of putting a cherry on top of what you just said on struggle. I think also it is important to differentiate when we're building something. Am I building this to be the best? In other words, it serves me or which is fine, but I think the way humans will take action around your goal is different versus am I doing this thing for these reasons that serve at a higher degree of humanity that make this a better place or a better thing than the way humans take what you're able to leverage with the humans around you is radically different. And in rooftop leadership, we go to the ladder. Like that's the people I work with. And it's, it's worthwhile to to step back and take a look. I think at, at our journey and ask ourselves, which way am I going here? Because both of them are very doable both of them involve struggle, but the way humans take action to assist you—one's transactional, the other is around social capital and human connection and reciprocity. Um, I'll choose the latter every time. It's just it's worth it's just worth so much more than the actual gold. And the gold will come. You know the the, the it is. I, I think of wealth in that sense as a way to sustain the message as a way to sustain that greater good and do what it is I'm trying to do. And it, it it always takes care of itself, you know, but social capital has been around longer than any form of capital in the world. Any form of capital in the world, social capital relationships are the assets. And that portfolio, the relationship portfolio that we can build in the pursuit of our bigger thing, that's where the real value is, I believe. and mm-hmm. And, it's harder to do these days than ever before, but it's 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 where the real value lies, is in that social capital.
0: Scott, where can people find you and what would you like to promote?
1: Um, we're building a webpage right now, we'll have done pretty soon, called uh, scottman.com. It has both my for-profit and non-profit stuff. But in the meantime, if you go to rooftopleadership.com, uh, all of our stuff's there, my TED Talks and uh, we have a, a rooftop podcast where we get deep on a lot of this stuff. I'd love to have you on at some point. Um, and then uh, I would love for people to keep, if even now, if you go to um, uh, Amazon, uh, Operation Pineapple Express is uh, is the story of the group of special ops volunteers who who stepped up and and helped get about a thousand Afghans out of Afghanistan when the government pulled back. And it's just a beautiful story. It's a real. It's just a story about leadership and and um, what can be done even when you don't have resources and a title. And and I think what's best in our country. Uh, and it's going to be out on August thirtieth, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon. And it's called Operation Pineapple Express. Don't
0: let Scott downplay the significance of his TED Talk. You have hundreds of thousands of views on your on your TED Talk. It's very very good. Uh, you know, in the, in the scheme of some Ted talks have no traction at all. You know, you sit at a hierarchy of really, really must have a accord with a lot of people, because that's not just somebody, you know, seeing it and then not thinking it had any value, that's shares and word of mouth. And that's really how some of the greatest things in the world get out there. So I want to also acknowledge that it was very impactful. I found it very, very uh, good. I was listening to it this morning while I was working out, getting prepared for this. And I was like. This is great. I mean, really, what a, what a nice job you did. Thank you, sir. Okay, you're welcome. One day they'll ask me to do a Ted talk, but I curse too much.
1: No, that's fine. Don't worry about it. I, I do too. Um, And I didn't curse for this one
0: because, um, but my language is, is very. I'm the, same, one.
1: Yours, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Yeah. Get on, get on that red circle, man. We need it.
0: Uh, if they ask me, I will, uh, I will show up. I don't say no to things like that.
1: Um, We, you, you, May need to do some searching in your, you know, what like where you'd want to do it and and uh, put a put a packet in. But we can talk offline about that.
0: All right, man. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you tremendously, and uh, thank, thank you for being me to today and sharing your time with everybody in the community. And I'm sure there's plenty of veterans because typically half the cops in the country are veterans. Right on. So That's why they're intermingled so well.
1: Right on. Yeah, and and to everybody listening to this, I just want you to hear this from me. Like what. What you all do for the country, just know that man, you are you are appreciated, at least by this dude right here. And I absolutely and my gratitude for what you all do to keep us safe. And I've been I've spent most of my life in societies where there's not rule of law. <laughs> and I am so grateful that and, and especially in light of what you all have had to endure and and the way that you have been treated, I am so sorry. I am just so sorry, and i am I'm embarrassed about it, but just know that we love you and and um we have your back for as long as we're breathing. And the veteran community is solidly behind you. And you have a lot more people at your shoulder than you think. That's all I can say. and 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 uh, thank you for for hanging in there and and continuing to keep us safe in spite of this jackassery. and i and and again, I I just I just need to say that because it's it's so incredible what you all do, and um, I mean so much so that my middle son's going down that road himself, and I'm I'm just immensely proud of you. So thank you.
0: Awesome. I'm sure he'll find uh, street cop training to be interesting when he discovers who we are. Maybe want to push that agenda a little bit.
1: I absolutely will.
0: So all right. Thanks for being here.